I would love for you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have a Bible. You can obviously pull one up on your phone. But we've got a welcome table back here, kind of in the middle by the door. And we've got Bibles there. And if you want to grab one of our Bibles, you can keep that. But we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're just going to read verses 6 and 7. So I'll give you just a moment to turn there with us. First Peter chapter 1, in, picking up in verse 6. The Apostle Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, right off the bat, we encounter here a very important principle for understanding the Bible that hopefully you've heard me or one of our other teachers mention before. The principle is that context matters. Context matters. If we're going to chew on two verses of Scripture in a sermon on a Sunday morning, it's important for us to remember how those two verses fit with the bigger picture of what's being taught, what comes before them and what comes after them. It's very dangerous to just rip a verse out of the Bible and slap it over your life without understanding how the pieces connect with the larger whole. And you can see that problem right here because in verse 6, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. Well, what is the this that we now rejoice in? We looked at that in detail last Sunday during my sermon. You can always go back to our YouTube channel and listen to those. But let me just uh, take a minute and remind you what we rejoice in. It's back in verses 4 and 5. If you want to look there and skim it over, we rejoice in God's mercy. We rejoice in the truth that God loved us even when we were enemies with him and unworthy of his love. We rejoice that God has redeemed us, saved us out of condemnation and sin, and that God has supernaturally, spiritually caused us to be born again into his kingdom. We are his cherished children because of this mercy he's given us. We rejoice that we've been given a living hope, a hope for this life as we walk through each and every day, and a hope that will go with us into the life after death the resurrection everlasting life we have in Christ. We rejoice that God has given to us an inheritance that he keeps undefiled, unfading, imperishable, waiting for us in heaven. And we rejoice because God is our shield. He safeguards us. He keeps us in his love. That's a lot to rejoice over, isn't it? That's a lot to rejoice over. I hope that actually after last Sunday's sermon that these things were flowing through your mind throughout this week and that you were pondering them. Praise God for these precious truths. And I would ask you, do you rejoice in these things? 
Is that the state of your heart in response to this? Are you a joyful person? Because God loves you. Because God has caused you to be born again. Because God has stored up for you an unfading reward in heaven, which is yours to receive on the day that he brings you into eternity. Do you know the joy, the hope, the freedom, the security of these truths, God's love for you? Whatever circumstances we might be facing, no matter how bleak or how difficult things may seem as we look to the future and we walk through life on a day-to-day basis, Peter has given us this incredible reminder why our hearts can be filled with joy in the midst of whatever our circumstances might be. Why we can praise God and bless his name because of all of the incredibly extravagant mercy that he has poured out on our lives. And I pray for our church that God would help us be people who rejoice in the glorious truth of his love for us. But I want you to see here that Peter is not blind to the difficulty that human life carries with it. He's not unaware of the hardship that defines the human experience. He encourages us to be people who rejoice because of everything that God has done for us, but he does not deny that our rejoicing must often come even in the midst of grief and trials. In fact, Peter uses that really heavy word here in verse 6 when he talks about our trials. He says that we rejoice even though we are grieved by the various trials that we walk through. Even though we talk about uh, rejoicing, the Bible does not gloss over the hardship of the trials. Trials suck. Right? If you don't know that truth, then I don't know what cave you've lived your life in. But trials suck. Even Jesus looking ahead at the trial that he would go through to suffer and die on the cross felt anguish in his soul. Trials bring us grief. They make our hearts heavy. They disturb the peace we might feel. They threaten the security that we desire to have. They add to our feelings often of shame and fear. Things like uncertainty at your job. A child that you anxiously pray for who has lost their way. A struggling marriage that's difficult to keep moving forward in. Illness or loss or loneliness and anxiety, financial insecurity, serious relational conflict. These kinds of trials that life brings our way are very real trials and Peter understands that they can make the heart ache under their strain. They bring with them grief. They can stifle our soul. They can arrest our development and progress towards maturity. And Peter doesn't pretend that the joy of our eternal inheritance, which is ours already and which will be fully ours in the life to come, just magically makes all of this disappear and go away. That's not Peter's position here. But he does remind us that even in the midst of the difficulty of the trials, we still have reason to rejoice 
Peter tells us that the grief of our struggles can still be met with the gladness of joy. And he reminds us that our trials can only last a little while. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. For the Christian, the longest that any trial can last for you is only the totality of your life. Believe it or not, that's actually good news. Because even if you were born into some lifelong hardship that might last 60 or maybe 80 or even 100 years, that might seem like a terribly long time to suffer through a trial, but in light of 10,000 years or 100,000 years in eternity, even lifelong suffering is still only a little while. Peter says, compared to the everlasting inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ, even if God's will was for you to walk through the most difficult circumstances for the whole length of your life, what a small thing that would be in light of a million years in eternal glory with Jesus Christ. But more than that, let's be honest. Most of the grief of the trials that we go through, in truth, is actually just short-lived. That's what Peter would have us remember, months, maybe at most years. That's still not that long, if you think about it. I remember a time in the early days uh, planting Maricopa Springs where Leanne and I were legitimately poor. (laughs) You know, sort of still kind of newlyweds with four young kids having moved across the country to try and plant a church. And, you know, we had bills we could hardly pay. And I remember waking up in the morning and the first thing that would enter my mind is like, I don't know how it's going to work out today. Like, I'm legitimately stressed out about this. I have deep, crushing anxiety in my soul and uncertainty in my heart. And I was working hard, but that didn't really make a difference. I found out I was a terrible salesperson and, uh, and our financial situation was not good. It was bleak. And it was a very difficult trial. I felt like a failure as a husband and a father. And um, I didn't really see any way to make things change. But you know what? It only lasted a couple of years. I mean, I mean, at this point, I hardly even remember the struggle. Eventually, the trial passed. And through it, I learned to trust God more. And in retrospect, you know what the one thing that I regret is? I regret not going through that trial with more joy in my heart. Instead of thinking about the goodness of God, I thought about the grief of my circumstances. And if I could go back in time and I could coach myself through that season of hardship, I would say to myself, look to the love and the mercy of Jesus and remember the goodness of God. Remember what you have to be joyful for. Remember how God's love is still fully displayed for you in the person of Christ. Grady, honestly, it might even actually still get worse from here. I won't deceive you, but God's love is sufficient. God will not abandon you in the midst of this difficulty, and the cross is proof of that truth. Stop fixating on the impossible circumstances that currently grieve you and instead set your heart on Christ who loves you. 
Your trials will pass. They will only last a little while. But let let me remind you that even now, you have so much to be joyful for. You have more to rejoice about than you have to worry about or complain about or grieve over. That's a fact, and I hope that you as a Christian believe that. I hope that you know that's true. I hope you feel that in your soul and in your bones. But I want you to see something else that Peter tells us about our trials. He tells us that our trials might be necessary. How's that for some encouragement on a Sunday morning? When something is necessary, it means that it's required. Like it's necessary for your car to have four wheels that have air in them. And notice that Peter does not say our trials are probable. His point here is not that we live in a fallen world and it's infected by sin. And so just brace yourself because there's a high likelihood, there's a great probability that at some point in this messed up world, some trials will come your way. Now that is actually true because we live in a broken world that's corrupted by sin. Sin is everywhere, even inside us. Inside of us, It is impossible to get through this life without some hardship. But that's not Peter's point here. Peter calls the trials that we might have to walk through necessary, which is to say that we need the trials that we go through. God himself in his great mercy walks us through the trials of our life that we go through so that our faith can be tested and found to be genuine. The trial that you are currently facing right now, you are facing because God knows that you need it. And he cares enough about you to put you through it. So let me give you three reasons, biblical reasons, why trials are necessary. First, we might have to go through a trial so that God can correct us and redirect our lives back to the right track. You can call this God's discipline or his loving correction. Hebrews chapter 12 addresses this, that because God is a good father who loves us, he will not permit his children to just be wayward forever and wander their way into self-destruction and ruin. God is faithful to show us what we might call tough love. Sometimes he places the trials in front of us intentionally to get us to head the right direction, away from sin and selfishness and the ruin of self-centeredness back into obedience. Let's just consider Paul for a second. Paul, as a Pharisee, thought that he was serving God by persecuting Christians, And what did God do? Jesus met him on that road to Damascus, knocks him to the ground, blinds him. And through that trial, God redirected the life of Paul to truly be a servant of God, to get on the path that God wanted him to be on. That was a trial of tough love. It came with a lot of anguish for Paul. Or think of Jonah. Jonah, who's given a command to go to Nineveh, to do what God intends for him to do there as a prophet. But Jonah ignores the word of God and runs the opposite direction. And so God in his mercy has Jonah swallowed by a great big fish to go through an almost death-like trial so that God can redirect him to where God wants him to go. 
Sometimes God puts us through the trial of discipline to correct us, and that is necessary in order to set us straight. Now, if you're going through a trial like that right now, then consider for one moment whether the trial that you're facing might actually be God's loving discipline, a hardship that God is putting you through in order to get your attention and redirect you back to the mercy of Jesus instead of whatever waits for you at the end of that path towards self-destruction. Is it possible that your marriage difficulties right now are present because you're not being obedient to what the Bible teaches about loving your spouse and being humble and selfless? Is it possible your financial hardship exists because you're not honoring God with your finances? You're serving the idol of comfort or materialism? Is it possible your anxiety is heavy because you're not walking in trust and faith? Because you're consuming too much media and not enough of God's Word, and so anxiety is the end result of that? Now, of course, discipline is not the reason for every trial, so don't misunderstand. But if you're going through something difficult right now, then I would encourage you to ask the question, is my life truly honoring to God in this area? Or could this be God lovingly correcting me? Sometimes the trials are necessary so that God can get our attention, so that He can put us back on the path towards Jesus. The second reason why trials are necessary is to deepen our understanding of who God is. And this is my favorite. I guess if I could have you leave anywhere remembering anything, it would be this piece of my message. The truth is, our God is incomprehensibly big. Incomprehensibly big. We do not know God like we should know Him. We do not understand the magnitude of His being. Even our efforts to comprehend Him always fall short, even though we should engage in that task. But if we were to compare our very small image of God with who he actually is, it would be like comparing the tiniest pebble that you might hold in your hand to Mount Everest as you stood at its base. The difference would be laughable. And so God in his love for us is constantly in the process of expanding our understanding of who he is growing our faith in him. And one of the tools that he uses for that work is trials. Scripture's full of people going through trials like this, but maybe one of the best examples is Job. Job is a wonderful book. It's one of my favorite books. If you've never read it, I encourage you to read it. At the beginning of the book of Job, we meet this man, and he's called a righteous man. Would you say that of yourself? Let me say it another way. Do you think that the Bible could describe you as a righteous man? That's how Job is described. And then he's put through a trial so intense that it makes our suffering pale in comparison. Truly. I know many of you have been through very hard situations, real soul-crushing difficulties in your life. And I don't want to diminish any of that hardship, but I'm telling you, that your trials, whatever they are, are actually kid stuff compared with what Job walked through. In a single day, 
God allows Job to experience the death of all of his children. All of Job's servants are then slaughtered. All of his livestock is also killed. And in the blink of an eye, Job goes from being a comfortable, wealthy, blessed man, the trajectory of his life looking great, to being utterly destitute, impoverished, crushed by the guilt of watching his children die before him, devastated, everything taken from him. And you would think that at that point, a merciful God would relent and would be like, all right, Job, I've really worked one over on you, but it's going to get better from here. But actually, God takes Job through a second round of intense suffering, striking him with physical illness to add to his soul anguish, physical anguish and pain. And his life becomes so miserable that his own wife advises him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Like, it can't get worse from here, Job, just die. And Job's a longer book in the Bible in the 40 or so chapters that follow the opening deal with Job, just trying to make sense of this suffering that he finds himself in. And I'm thankful that I can learn the lesson that this book teaches by reading Job's story and not having to go through a trial like this myself. That is a great mercy. But at the end, Job says the most amazing thing about the trial that God puts him through. It's found in chapter 42, verse 5. Job says to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. After going through his trial, Job says to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. That's chapter 42, verse 5. What Job comes to realize is that he never would have had this bigger, truer, more wonderful comprehension of who God is if God had not put him through the suffering of that trial. Job would never have known God like he came to know God if God had not wounded him in order to bring forth from that wound something beautiful, something precious that wouldn't have existed apart from the wound. Before the trial, Job knew some things about God. You could take him out for a cup of coffee and he could describe God to you. But after the trial, Job came to know God having seen God. It's almost as if Job rejoices in that verse. And if Job's understanding of God prior to the trial was like a pebble in light of Mount Everest, then I think Job would be willing to admit that after the trial, his understanding of God was maybe more like South Mountain in light of Mount Everest. Still not yet complete and yet significantly greater. And I don't think Job would have given that up. I think if after the trial you could interview Job and say, would you give up this greater view of God that you have to have your children and your wealth and your comfort back? I think he would answer that and say, no, not ever. See, God in his love understood that it was necessary for Job to undergo that trial 
so that Job could have greater faith and greater love for God and greater knowledge of who this God is, so that Job could draw more near to God, so that God could give to Job a more true, more full, more robust relationship with him. And so again, I would ask you to think about your trial, whatever it might be that you're going through. Could it be that God is walking you through this difficulty because it's necessary? Necessary in order for your understanding of who he is to grow? Necessary in order for your trust and love for him to expand so that your vision of God will be bigger and more clear and more vibrant and more vivid? Could it be that on the other side of this wound, that you're currently experiencing is beauty that you cannot even now imagine. Maybe like the pain of childbirth that in the moment feels unbearable but gives life to the child whose beauty is even more than you ever imagined. Wouldn't you love to go from hearing things about God to seeing him in your life? Wouldn't you give anything, wouldn't you endure any trial to see more clearly the loving face of Jesus as he looks at you? And if we hold our faith firm, then the grief of our trials has an incredibly powerful purpose in the mind of God. God uses the grief of our suffering, the grief of our trials to increase our vision of his goodness and his love and his faithfulness and his tenderness towards us. Just like he used the grief of the cross to prove to us his goodness and love and faithfulness. And if you're going through a trial like this right now, where maybe God is walking you through a hardship, through the grief, to deepen your understanding of who he is, then I would encourage you to pray a prayer from Ephesians. Will you turn with me to Ephesians 3? In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, we get such an incredible, beautiful prayer. And I don't know what your prayer life is like, but a lot of times our prayer lives can fall into just praying about our different worries and troubles and circumstances. Listen to this prayer. Listen to how the Bible would pray for you. Ephesians 3, picking up in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's Job-like understanding of God's love for you. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What if that prayer was the anthem of your life? 
And do you see it in verse 19 there, the prayer that God would allow you to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge? That's the kind of knowledge that comes through trial. And what a gift your trial that you're currently walking through might end up being for you. The third reason why trials are necessary is the reason that Peter gives us in verse 7. If you want to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me, I'll remind you, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter tells us that trials are necessary so that our faith can be tested. It is not difficult to trust God when times are easy and life is sweet and everything is hunky-dory. But when the difficulty and hardship of trials come, that's when we find that it's hard to actually have faith. That's when things get difficult. But faith that is not put to the test is not genuine. A good illustration comes to us from the Old Testament. Uh, Israel's in slavery in Egypt and they cry out to God. And so God comes with miracles, sending the man Moses to do ten signs to set the people of Israel free. And they leave Egypt with unbelievable signs and wonders. And they get out from under the slavery and they end up in the desert, and they're going to enter into the promised land where God has said that he will take them and care for them and provide for them. And in preparation, they send into Israel, the promised land, uh, spies to go spy out the land. And many of those spies return, and they report to the people of Israel, you can't go in there. There's big, scary people that live in this land. They're like giants. They'll definitely beat us when it comes to sword fighting. And so this is a bad direction. We shouldn't go this way. Now, God could have gone before Israel to clear out the promised land ahead of them. He could have wiped those people out. He could have made a way. It would have been easy for God to totally subdue the people of Canaan ahead of Israel so that there was nothing for them to do but just walk in triumphantly. But God wanted to test his people. To see if after all the signs and wonders, when things were really good, if they would walk in faith in the direction that he was leading them. To test, to see if their faith in him was strong. Even when he wasn't pouring out the miraculous favor. And tragically, maybe you know how the story goes, Israel fails the test. They failed to trust the very same God who had made every provision for them in the trial in the past They failed to trust that he would be with them as they walked into the future. And as a result, things only got more difficult for them. It got worse. And so true faith is faith that clings to God even in the midst of the trial. Peter tells us that faith is worth more than gold. Because gold is not everlasting. It's not eternal. Whereas faith that is tested is enduring. So if you're going through a trial right now where your faith is being tested, then the only thing that you must do is hold to Jesus, cling to him, 
Don't fall to unbelief. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't grow weary or discouraged or hopeless in the midst of the hardship. Don't doubt God's love for you. Don't doubt his goodness. Remember what he has done in the past and cling to him. Don't falter in your trust. Don't deny his power. He will carry you safely through this if you trust him. When I was eight years old, I got to go on a whitewater rafting trip down the Colorado River. And um, it was terrifying. Our little rubber boat flowing down these raging rapids, this torrential river surrounded by water that was just rushing and overwhelming. And I'm like a little eight-year-old. And so what could I do? Well, I could only do what the rafting guide told me to do, which was cling to the rope on the side of the boat. Like, just hold on. And so I followed those instructions. And when I got off that two-hour rafting trip, I could barely open my hands. They were freezing cold from the water and in terrible pain. My knuckles looked like they belonged to a corpse. I got to learn firsthand that phrase, white-knuckled grip, from just squeezing. But I was safe. I'd held on to the boat. I never let go. I didn't fall out. I wasn't left alone. And things turned out good in the end. In fact, you know what? When it was all over, I think if you'd asked me, I, I could even say, I think I had a little bit of fun, just a little bit. Want to do it again? No, probably not, but I had a little bit of fun. <laughs> so as God tests the genuineness of your faith, as you walk through the trials that bring you grief, hold fast to Jesus. Rejoice in his love for you. He won't let go of you. Don't let go of him. And Peter promises that at the end of the trial, the result will be praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see what he says? Look closely at what he says there in verse 7. The grief, the hardship of the testing, the fiery trial will give birth to glory and honor and praise when Jesus is revealed. Now this final statement here, maybe you notice, it's, it's grammatically ambiguous. Does the praise and honor and glory belong to Jesus at his revelation? Or does the praise and honor and glory belong to you at the revelation of Jesus? You who passed the test. Well, why can't it be both? See, I think Peter states it this way on purpose, to be somewhat ambiguous. Of course, Jesus is going to be worthy of all the praise and the honor and the glory because he made every provision. He is the one who secured your salvation and caused us to be born again. He suffered the wrath of God that we deserve in our place. And at the end of all things, the glory of Jesus will shine brighter than the sun. It will draw forth from the lips of every person who trusted him praise and adoration which he alone deserves for all of the hard work that he alone did. He is the raft to which we cling, and so he will be worthy for bringing us through the rapids of the trials. 
He's the one who put us through the trial so that we might learn to trust him more. And so he'll be worthy of the glory. But you know what Jesus taught? Jesus taught that at the end of this journey, his faithful servants will hear some incredible words. Well done. Well done. Jesus promised that those who passed the test and who love him, they will enter into the joy of their master. And Scripture teaches us that for those of us who walk through grief and cling to Jesus and keep our eye on the internal inheritance and hold fast to the anchor of our soul, there will be glory and honor and immortality for all of those who keep the faith and pass the test. And after a little while, when the trial and the grief has passed, we will lift our voices to give praise to God who's kept us in his love. And God himself will say back to us, well done. And in this we can rejoice. Even now, even in the midst of our current trials. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you keep us in your love. And I pray that you would help us cling to you. If we're honest, we don't like the testing of our faith. But I thank you that there's great reward on the other side of it. A bigger vision of you. A truer understanding of you. A greater dispensation of your love. So Lord, I, I pray for any anyone in this room right now who's going through a hardship like what Peter teaches on, that they would rejoice because of everything you have done and everything you will do, and that they would understand that the trial is only temporary, and that they would understand that you're with them, and that your intention is to do good to them because you love them. I pray that you would hold fast to them and that you would teach them to hold fast to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.